It's the Luminaries with David Odyssey. This time, a much anticipated dialogue with the one and only Lulu Krause. But first, thoughts on Terminator 2, The Gay Cold, Sinead O'Connor, Boat Parties, and more general musings from your favorite Jewish, neurotic, emotional, anorectic, David Odyssey. See you on the other side. Thanks for listening. Past the point of no return. Um, I am getting very close to my dream of buying a, a row of seats to Phantom. Just you wait. Um, the delightful pitter-patter in the background is the rainstorm, which I am grateful for today because I am in day four of convalescence from what is now being known as the gay cold. Um, so I'm, I'm grateful to have a, uh, you know, a Judy Dench in Notes on a Scandal um you know, it's raining, I'm in Islington, I'm looking out a window kind of scenario. Uh, naturally, I was crestfallen to miss the Barbara Streisand, not the Barbara Streisand, oh my god, the Charlie XCX party at the Rosemont last night, and, you know, God forbid I be able to, like, not be sick every single month and uh, shattered somatically, but, you know, I got what I deserved. Okay, uh, Previous guest Layla Halabian did send me this amazing tweet from some faggot. Quote, the term gay cold really rubs me the wrong way. I know I'm sensitive, but like, you have a cold from going out. We have a long history of people equating disease with our existence, and we can probably do better. Thank you for taking a stand. We know! The reason we're calling it a gay cold is because we all grew up in the fucking shadow of AIDS. And for once in our life, we want to be a little bit cheeky and insouciant about the fact that we're just a bunch of faggots who went out too hard on pride and now we're all sick. Okay. Thank you again for taking a stand, uh, you know, twitty, but you're missing the point. Um, you're missing the point of humor. All right. Um, now that that's done, I did attend a boat party on Saturday at which I did not have any anxiety attacks. And I just want to thank recovery, sobriety, and therapy because I was able to have scores of very positive, uh, reunions and interactions and not be in my shadow sexual abuse reality in which everyone hates me, no one knows who I am, and I have been disregarded. I was actually able to really enjoy myself. I was wearing a Jean-Paul Gaultier sailor top that Melissa Rich purchased for me from uh, our favorite store, Leisure Center on Hester Street, which I highly recommend. Okay, why do I have a note that says werewolf? What could I possibly have to say about werewolves? Oh, you know... I was talking with my dear friend Rose R. Scott, who we need to have on the podcast, and about like being interested in people who are younger than you. And I was just like, you know, I'm like an old Saturnian 
busted, not crone, but it's like my life has so much rigidity to it, I feel like. There's so many rules that I govern myself by. No sugar, no seltzer, because it might set off my cavities. No substances, no this, no that. But you know what Rose said to me was like, yeah, but we're very powerful. That makes us powerful. It makes us really like desirable. And it brings out this like clarity and this, this incandescence that isn't muffled away by all of these other distractions. So I'll go with it. Um, I did get a haircut. I got a Bushwick lesbian mullet. Um, to be clear, this is my worst nightmare. I do not want this haircut. I would never want this haircut. And I am dealing with the fallout actively, but thank you for your support. I will say, as I left the barber's office, the barber's office, <laughs> uh, I was getting cruised. So, you know, it's not really about what I want. And even one of the people who cruised me, who I should have just gone up to, is an Instagram, like, star bottom, who I've been obsessed with. Uh, who I recently unfollowed because this is the year of unfollowing hot people, but it's like, okay, regardless of what I want, apparently me looking like every other faggot on on Myrtle Street, Myrtle Myrtle Street, Myrtle Avenue, it works. Um, who is Kylie Jenner? Who is she? Should I know who that is? I, I'm just, I, I, I'm like, you know... Azalea brought up a, another Jen, Jenner in the new song. The new song is amazing. Fuck all night. But, you know, I'm writing, I'm getting ready to write my, my monthly astrology roundup and do my piece on Leo's. And I was asking people for their suggestions. Of course, Madonna and JLo. I, I got it. Someone said Kylie Jenner. And I was just like, you know, this is how I feel about my haircut, which I think is how I feel about a lot of my family of origin is it's like, have you been paying attention to a single word I've said this whole time? Who do you think I am? Kylie Jenner. Do you think I know slash care who that is? God, why am I so angry? I, let, let me tell you, I'm, I'm not, everything is going great. I'm really happy to be alive right now. So I don't want you to think that I'm like seething with rage. Everything's fine. Um, I would love to not be sick, but also like me wanting to not be sick indicates uh, a lust for life that I'm very grateful to have. Um, okay. I watched Terminator 2 over the weekend. Not too much to say. Let's praise the work of S. Epitha Merkson in it. Uh, and let's also, of course, say, you know, if I could have any body, I would have Linda Hamilton's body. Okay? Period. Um, I would love to... I would love Arnold Schwarzenegger's body on someone I am having sex with. I want Linda Hamilton's body. I want her hat. I want her sunglasses. I want her her military surplus uh, apparel. By the way, I have a lot of like profound things to say about Terminator 2. I just can't think of any of them right now. I will just say like it is crazy that in that 1990, 1992 period, we got, I'm pretty sure we got Thelma and Louise, Ghost, Terminator 2, and League of Their Own. And it's like, okay, interesting that like they forgot how to do that for the next, you know, for 
the entirety of the last 20 years of like, wow, writing a woman who's like complex. By the way, I say, I'm, you know, I'm going to see Black Widow this weekend featuring one of our finest actors, Scarlett, as my stepmother calls her, Scarlett Johansson, who, you know, let's just talk about like Marvel, etc. God, those women characters are boring and put upon. And when you watch something like like Terminator 2, you're like, wow, this is such a full character. And like the scene where she goes to kill S. Epitha Merkson's husband and she can't do it. And she's just having a full fucking PTSD breakdown. And her son, John Connor, has to like comfort her. You're like, wow, this relationship is incredible and it's also fucked up. And like, that's amazing. Um it's just, they just don't make them like that anymore. I don't know what to tell you. Um, I'm watching a lot of Buffy and Angel for another article I'm writing right now. And season five of Buffy and season four of Angel are the Terminator seasons, which are basically like an unstoppable force has come to take everything. Love. Uh, I did just rewatch, well, I've watched a lot of Buffy, but the Buffy episode Lies My Parents Told Me, where... Principal Wood, we learn that his mother was the slayer that Spike killed in the 70s, and we get those fabulous flashbacks. I just think it's like the way that they handle the mommy issues is so beautiful. And that moment of Buffy saying to Giles, like, I think you've taught me everything I need to know, I loved. Um, Oh, I just want to say, like, this week... Um, I had two really incredible interactions with listeners of the pod, uh, Katarzyna, who I've been in a, who I've been, you know, corresponding with and Vincent. So I just want to shout out both of you and say like, I love you. And I usually think that the only person listening to the podcast is no one. And it really means a lot to like get this sort of, uh, affirmation and support. Um, I started Scream 3 because... When we talked about my, in therapy, when we were talking about my ideas about like food and fitness, I was basically saying how much I feel like Jamie Lee Curtis and uh, Neve Campbell in their respective horror franchises in terms of like, well, this is my way of staying vigilant forever. And then I'm watching Scream 3 to kind of heal that. It's so good. I'm curious. I would love to know, has anyone seen the new Halloween movie? Can I handle it? I think it would be really healing for me to watch it, but I'm also scared of the nightmares because as we know, I'm the world's worst sleeper. Classically, I am very sick right now and I can still only get about seven hours a night. Okay. Um, Loki show, very beautiful. Um, I love how Owen Wilson says the word Loki. I love Owen Wilson. I'm from Houston. Um, he looks great with gray hair. You know, it, it looks like what Doctor Who would look like if Doctor Who had a budget, but I think Doctor Who not having a budget is what makes Doctor Who Doctor Who. Uh, obviously, I'm a Matt Smith Doctor Who person. I think season five and, and then largely season six are like the peak. Um, I'm enjoying Loki mainly for the aesthetics. Um... Also, I didn't... It's weird. Tom Hiddleston has a great butt. It's weird when really tall people like that, especially the British, have good butts. So I just want to, like, shout out all the work he's doing. Speaking of the British, 
Yes, I am almost done with Sinead O'Connor's memoir. I promise we 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 have a Sinead astrology episode in the works. Um, you know, believe you me. But um, I will say, listen, I am someone who has read Jeanette Winterson's memoir, Why Be Happy When You Can Be Normal. So I am well-versed as a Jew from Texas in the suffering of um, queer-ish women who grew up in Ireland under the boot of deranged uh, borderline Catholic mothers. The Sinead O'Connor memoir is unreal. It's very Sagittarian, but I'm what I'm realizing as I go through her oeuvre, she is really a precursor to Caroline Polachek, and similarly... She doesn't make bad music. Every song is incredible. Uh, Start wherever you want to start. I would definitely say that her cover of Don't Cry For Me Argentina is really good. I am a sucker for the album I Do Not Want What I Haven't Got, which gives us Nothing Compares to You and Three Babies. But listen, like, um, Universal Mother, great. I I mean, Lion and Cobra, great. It's all good. Um... Her story about Prince is bone-chilling, and I believe her. And just like her way of being like, I'm a pariah, and I'm insane, and I don't really care, it's just unlike anything. Um, but yeah, way more to come. Um, rewatch the episode of Sex in the City where Carrie goes on her first date with Alexander Petrovsky, which gave me hope for my own upcoming first dates that I believe are imminent. To be clear, Petrovsky is the only viable mate for Carrie. If I met a man like that tomorrow, consider it done. I think that the finale, I agree with Emily Nussbaum, my hero, the finale of Sex in the City is not canon. The idea that he would randomly slap her and then Big would come and save her in Paris is just very engineered and it's not the show is not really supposed to end with her getting big it's supposed to end with her by the way me talking about sex and city none of this is interesting or original to you i'm aware petrovsky though gorgeous russian mikhail barishnikov stunning jawline takes her to the russian samovar on their first date if um okay if anyone is listening right now who wants to take me to the russian samovar um, and like wine dine 69 me, I will put out. Okay. Um, also, by the way, Miranda leaving Blair Underwood for Steve made no sense. Steve is trash. He does. He belongs with his girlfriend. Miranda, of course, would end up with like a hot, rich doctor. She's like a, a, a major attorney. There's no way she's taking Steve to her like office parties uh Blair Underwood for me you know we've established this and set it off has a really good sex scene with Jada but he will always be associated with the pyromaniac episode of Law and Order SVU okay I just want to say judge me I'm watching Transparent I'm re-watching it I know that it's like psycho of me and dark-sided but like my Jewish inherited trauma my jewish sexuality my queerness 
can kind of only be healed by transparent. And I also just want to say, and like this relates a lot to like what's been going on with Buffy, is like I don't believe in throwing the baby out with the bathwater. I understand. I understand any stance that would say like forget that show and don't watch that show because what Jeffrey Tambor did in real life is unacceptable and it's abhorrent. But like, I don't want to lose the other performances, which I think are really a gift. You know what I mean? Like, I don't want to lose not just what like. Trace Lissette does, but like, you know, Gabby Hoffman, this is the role of a lifetime. So it's just really complicated, but the show is meant to be healing. And like, what could be better than Melora Hardin as a lesbian? Okay. This is the tea. This week's episode was supposed to be Lulu and I doing the astrology of Six Feet Under. As it were, because this is the way it always goes with Lulu and me, we ended up having a fascinating, meandering, kind of a before sunset, if you will, conversation about our upbringing, about this summer in New York City, about like confidence, superiority, all of it. Um, So I just want to say like, Buckle up. I, I think you're going to love it. I love it. You know, Lulu is one of the, the loves of my life. So I just want to put all that out there. Uh, Lulu is an artist and a performer who I have seen absolutely blow the duplex in half um, and a great friend of mine. So thank you for listening. Uh, and we have some big ones coming in the pipeline. So I will just say, like, truly buckle up. Uh, moi. <laughs> Okay, I'm so happy I'm with you. How are you? I'm great. Yeah. I'm like, I mean, the only update that I've decided the only thing I need to tell anyone when they ask me how I am or what I've been up to is that I had a Gen Z make me an inklet. Like, <sighs> Which has been like the mission of this summer and like to have made that much progress. <laughs> You know, June isn't even over and you already have an anklet. Okay, I just want to take that in. And it was made by someone who's like maybe 22 or 23. (laughs) Or younger even, but I don't know. I can't imagine. Um, (laughs) My update for you is that last week, like two of my friends slash mentors started giving me advice. And I was like, you know... (laughs) I don't need this, actually. Like, you can just, like, pay for the meal. I don't need anything else from you, from anyone. Did they, Did you hear immediately? Or did you notice that they were giving you advice immediately? Yes, because in the past they have. And I. it was, like, good advice about, like, my business and money. But I was like, I don't – I'm not needing this right now. I actually just need, like, love and, and support. Um, I don't want, I don't need anyone telling me anything. Yeah. So thank you for teaching. <laughs> I hope it wasn't advice that I gave you. No, no, no. You were setting that rule for yourself. And then it like has reverberated. It's made me so sensitive to unsolicited advice because I know that I never ask for advice now. So it feels really shocking to be receiving advice at any given moment 
but yes it was i i'm exactly what you just said it was like it's more jarring now than it was before i also have realized from it that i used to get unsolicited advice a lot and i didn't even know it and so i would take it i didn't realize what was happening i would hear that i should do something and i would be like oh yeah i should do okay i have to do this thing yeah you know my dream in high school was to go to nyu and then like someone told me that it was like hard to get into and expensive and i didn't even apply why that i had the identical thing the exact (laughs) same thing nyu (laughs) why didn't i apply (laughs) like what who cares it's not about like anything the whole thing is totally arbitrary. And then you and I ended up going to these little <laughs> like private, other private institutions. And like, what good did that do anyone? It was, it's irrelevant. The whole thing's irrelevant. So like, why couldn't we have gotten our side of the cosmic joke? Yeah, I don't know if I got to be part of a different cosmic joke because I went to Haverford. <laughs> Right. And I went to Emerson and I still have, I literally had a dream last night where I said, I don't want to go to Boston. I want to go to New York. Okay. I graduated almost 10 years ago and I still am afraid that I have to go back there. I have regular nightmares that I like didn't do my final exams and I have to go back to Boston for my last semester and I have to pack up and leave New York. You know what I mean? Why? I have those homework nightmares. I have them also. Really? Yeah, I didn't study for like a social studies test. Oh, and I did really, really bad in social studies. So like, I think I'm still working through like in grade nine, I had a teacher named Ms. Lenarchit, Ms. Lenarchich, Lenarchich. Hmm. And she was like really tall and blonde and so beautiful. And I got like 73 on, um, my final social studies exam with her and she called my parents and like told them that they should be prepared for this really or like 63 I almost failed that's what it was and she called them to tell them that like they should be prepared to see this really bad grade and that it didn't make any sense to her and she, she was sort of just like alleviating herself of any responsibility I guess while stirring the shit for you because then your parents are like telling Jewish parents to be prepared for bad news. Like that is the single worst thing you could do. Especially when it has to do with grades. (laughs) But I still have a lot of dreams about not being prepared for like geography or history tests because of Miss Leonard Teach. I have, I have those dreams where, yeah, I, I, realize that I've been failing Miss Abulafia's algebra class all along. And is that because we've decided one way or another to like embrace our artistic sensibilities and we fear like the grand Saturnian um, taskmaster is going to come for us and like see if you had like gotten, if you had done better in social studies, um, maybe your life would be more secure or I, I don't even know what this is about. I don't know either, but if I think back through, like, if I just think about every day of high school, um, I just 
realized that, and it actually makes me think of Six Feet Under and Claire, okay. like how, how like categorically traumatizing those years are for everyone and how if once you're past it, you just can't pay attention to it for anyone else. You're just like, you gotta get through it. Like, Which is why, I mean, I wanna talk about this with you. Like for me, the idea of having children is like, well, why would I wanna like go back to middle school? I, yeah, I don't think I would, maybe that's part of it. I was talking to my friend, Belinda, this past week who has <laughs> she's amazing she has a son named Baloo and he's also like he's like a magic she hates kids but she she's like friends with Baloo her son he's like great three. and it's really fun to talk to her about also hating kids but from the perspective of the fact like she won't she doesn't like his friends coming over she doesn't like to talk to kids but he's just like her pal and she was telling me, I was like, what's it like to talk to parents when you have to like do stuff with Baloo? And she took him to Little League. She's part of like some community Little League thing for him. And she was telling me that a lot of parents will introduce themselves to her by going, who's, who's your kid? Like, who's, whose parent are right, you? Right. And she hates that. And she's like, that's the only way that, that that's like, access to identity for parents i feel i was at a wedding of someone i went to high school with this was in 2017 this was the last wedding i attended and after that i instilled my like battle axe policy and now you know the jewish girls that i grew up with know better than even bother inviting me but um that said i am available to um officiate cool people's weddings but i was at this wedding in 2017 and this a mom came up to me this was a mom i i i grew up with her son from like preschool through high school and even into our like after high school year in israel program okay so i knew her okay i literally like i knew her and she came up to me and she was like david it's me sandra jordan's mom and i was like this is devastating. You know, it was so brutal for everyone involved. And it was just like, what, what has been the point of this whole project? You know what I mean? If you're just going to still be stuck in this role forever. I, I just think it's totally dehumanizing, which it's is very Ruth Fisher. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it is. <laughs> um, it's the law, I think it maybe has a tie for the longest running narrative in human history. One, the other one is, you know, like fame killing you, but everyone still wants to be famous. Mm. That's like, that's just been, and I think that one is like, great. Like everyone still wants to be famous, even though so there's just proof for thousands of years that if you get famous, you'll end up wanting to die. Mm. Mm -hmm. The most distilled version. Another really, really long narrative, I think, is what motherhood does to someone's identity and what it does to and what it does to like their kids' identity. That's like the theme of therapy for everyone. Motherhood. No, yes. I was 
watching one of my favorite Buffy episodes, which is it's revealed that Spike, the vampire, when he first got turned into a vampire in like whatever, 1812, he turned his mother so that they could be together forever. And of course, once he made his mother a vampire, she didn't have a soul. So she totally turned on him and she, you know, she says, you're disgusting. I've always hated you. I've never liked you since the moment I gave birth to you. I find you like repugnant. Your poetry's boring. Um, and then she's like, you just want to fuck me, don't you? You just want to fuck your mother. That's what you want. So then, of course, he kills her and it's all very Freudian. And watching it, I'm like, you know, this is such an a, an easy go-to as an origin story for a character, but also like... <laughs> yeah you know what i mean like i don't really think we've progressed that far away from no. this narrative and like yeah of course it is all gonna come down to like mommy you know yeah and i guess uh fame and power are maybe like you know spin-off stories from mommy well i think fame takes you as far out of the womb right the idea is that the the light of exposure takes you out of the darkness of the womb mm -hmm. and i think that escape into like if we want to talk archetypally you know the moon is very much like the mother archetype and the moon goes dark the moon is mysterious the moon doesn't produce its own light it only reflects the light of the sun and then the sun which is a little bit more masculine is this like bright constant never changing thing but you know the moon goes through phases and much of that phase is death and rebirth and i think there's something about the womb which is like mother created me and mother's gonna kill me and like i don't want to go back to her you know yeah but also like um the minute i'm born i want to spend the rest of my life trying to stay in the womb mm. right so fame is like salvation and it's destruction. Unless you can maybe like there, I think there's some plateau of fame or power that might be paradise. Like, I'll, like mm. I imagine like Catherine Hahn may live in that paradise. Catherine Hahn and even let me just say Catherine Keener. Oh okay. yeah, that's, that's a perfect example. <laughs> Both Catherines are there. Okay, so my question to you is this. Why, because I'm writing an article about Britney Spears right now, why do famous women, especially like pop star women, always get destroyed, not by their mother, but by their father? Like, mm. why is it that like Britney Spears, uh, Beyonce, uh, Rihanna, etc., always have this like intense fight like battle for survival against this like father figure who's trying to kill her basically i don't know enough about any of their fathers other than the like um page six basics mm -hmm. to know but it, i mean i guess it just has to do with like archetypal masculinity right mm. does it have to do with power of course some like you know fragility that gets translated into <laughs> like killing energy life ruining energy yeah and maybe it's like that they've created these women who aren't in the mother archetype and who like 
actually do claim this identity that's so much bigger than them and the men can't handle that because maybe those men grew up with the the mothers who were only known as their mothers and didn't have any any other identity or power does it all are all of the examples you just listed it all has to do with money right yes there's all yeah i mean i guess money feels really like powerful it is powerful but <laughs> cool <laughs> i guess it goes back to capitalism but also there's a thing about the name like rihanna's dad was using their family name fenty right. to like start all of these little businesses um back in the islands and rihanna was like no your name was nothing before me and i think that that's kind of happening in some way with like beyonce and britney spears too which is like these men like were nothing and then their daughters who have their like surname and who can't change that surname like britney spears if she marries sam asgari is not going to become britney asgari she's britney mm -hmm. spears so there's always that connection i think like the name is like again very solar it's very external and maybe that's like what the father sees as his power i mean my brother like gave me this lecture once about how he was ha he had to have a male heir to continue the goldberg name which of mm -hmm. course we all know how that has ended i have changed my name um forever but i just think like there's something about like males and names that i think is like really humiliating i think so too and the i've heard from divorced one divorced friend that it's really difficult to change your last name back if you mm take a partner's name when you get married. And so she just like, she's been divorced for six or seven years and it's just been too much trouble to switch her name back. And she's known by her like ex-husband from her twenties last name. And it's like such a like tattoo. Did a lot of the people you grew up with take their husband's name upon marriage? Well, my mom didn't which is amazing, which is like striking. And it, she said it's because she got married when she was older. So it was like, mm. she didn't want to change it at that point. The girls who I went to high school with and yeah, they've all taken their husband's last names, but it's Me like too. all the same, like you're going from like Epstein to Goldstein. Like, okay. Yes. <laughs> it's like, there isn't much of a change. Like, I grew up with Vicky Botvin, who is now Vicky Botvin Hawkman. And it's like, okay, what a journey. I wish I could think of examples, but I recently, not re I unfollowed like everyone who I know from my childhood. Yeah. And so I can't even pull up who they are now or what their last names are. Yeah, it's really weird when that happened because I was like, Listen, I think by, listen, I changed my name. I think like taking an opportunity to change your name, of course, is a reclamation, but like, it just was very automatic and this really like, oh, okay. Like, I guess that's that. I, I don't know. I just, I know that you're from Canada and I'm from Texas, but like, what people don't know about like the Jewish world I grew up in, because I went to Jewish private school my whole life and like Houston has a very big uh, Jewish community is like 
Americanized assimilated Jews are so fucking weird. It's just like, what are we doing? Like, what is the yeah. point of all of this? You know? I I think can Canadian Canadianized assimilated Jews are the same. Yeah. It was such a like it was a real shock to I went to a Jewish elementary school and high school was like pretty Jewish, even though it wasn't, you know, half day Hebrew. But moving to Haverford, not NYU for college, <laughs> was really shocking. And then eventually dating someone whose father was an Episcopalian pastor was like the first time I was actually like uh, exposed to another religion <laughs> on an intimate level. Like I, yeah. I didn't know anything about Christianity. I thought that Catholicism was at the top and it divided into Christianity and others. <laughs> Honestly, <laughs> I'm going to, I, I am going to be honest here, despite the stacks of books I have read on comparative mythology and religion, I don't think my knowledge of Christianity has evolved much past what you just said. Like the start of Elizabeth with Kate Blanchett, where like the Catholics are burning the Protestants. I was like, I'm confused. <laughs> It's literally like the first scene and I'm like, all right, I'm already lost. Like what's going on? Because I was just never exposed to it. Yeah. Um, but instead I was exposed to this like weirdly nationalistic culture that's like very American and very like patriotic and very consumerist and like not very definitely observant but like not connected to the jewish like ethos and i mean you and i have talked about this but like seeing the live yiddish fiddler on the roof was one of those moments where i was like oh this is the jewish story like mm -hmm. this is the only jewish story and the one that i many of the jewish narratives i grew up with are like a little bit lost from this you know yeah, completely. I've never connected it in that way to what Jewish life was for me in Vancouver. And it really is that. I mean, it's the opposite of of the the like kids I went to to Jewish day school with. But there's like there's a lot of education about the Holocaust for across any year of Jewish elementary school. Yeah. So you sort of understand, it's almost like it turns into sort of like biblical scripture, the way it was taught to us, even though so many kids had like Holocaust survivor grandparents, because it's such a disjuncture from like the reality for a lot of, of, Americanized Jewish families in the 90s. Yeah, it's weird. It's like, right, because I grew up with it very persistently. And it's like, I feel like the world that I grew up in was this very much like, well, we got out. We're now in like a rich country and everyone is well fed. Ganug. And then it was, you know, Israel has a very different thing, which is like, well, we need to like keep fighting and keep being embattled 
to like give this struggle uh, like a perpetual meaning kind of. Mm -hmm. And America, it's like America or Canada or like whatever this like assimilated diaspora lifestyle is, it's much more like, well, we did it, we've earned our complacency, but we're gonna keep it there so that like it's it's almost like we're guilty about our complacency so we're going to keep the holocaust like ever present so that we don't like i don't even know what the what the goal was there um like don't get too comfortable or, or what i don't know i don't know either i heard my my brother recently my brother rarely reads the news he's the most prolific mathematician of his generation also <laughs> such a shitty thing to just immediately burst out laughing about <laughs> but he really actually is <laughs> which is amazing i just like you know it's not that's not a phrase i come up i'm laughing because it's like i don't I, hear that every day okay really it's just like also canned at this point like it's the equivalent of um every time every time an actor in a movie i watch dies on screen I now have to say um, it's every Hollywood actor's dream to die on screen. And it has been so, this is a total, total like non sequitur, but also important just watching, like I, I'm moving away from um, Vancouver and Texas Jews watching, you know, I've been like going through this year, trying to watch all of these important movies, just think about film a little bit differently, start to Same. pay attention. Same. And watching, thinking about like the opportunity and like the feeling that these huge actors get when they get to have like a huge death scene on camera. <laughs> it has been so joyful. Like uh, Gladiator, ever watched it? Ever heard of it? Unfortunately, yes. Continue. <laughs> Russell Crowe, huge gives a lot for his death scene. I think Joaquin gets to die on camera, does a good job. <laughs> like, yeah. Well, I mean, like the end of Thelma and Louise, though you don't see them die, which is critical, like Gina Davis and Su Susan Sarandon are like, oh, we're now immortal after this. Wow. Like they literally, it's like an apotheosis, like they become constellations. I have, I must watch. Oh, yeah. Um, sorry if I just spoiled uh, a movie from 1993. <laughs> it's okay. <laughs> I got angry. I'm watching The Sopranos for the first time and I got mad that someone recently like spoiled part of season five as if mm, they know. like needed to. Well, I told them not to tell me anything. And then she like this person. I didn't even know her. She was a partner of someone who was invited to a wedding. She was a plus one. And she ruined a huge plot point in season five of The Sopranos and I'll never see her again. And she did it after I told her to stop talking about it. Now, this is something that I wanna say. I don't enjoy dilettantes and I don't enjoy people who don't understand the emotional stakes of art, which is to say, when Lulu's watching The Sopranos or when I am watching, you know, Buffy, whatever, I'm really in it to win it, okay? I am fully present and I am like really there. This is my release, this is my peace, this is my my escape. And then you have these people who are truly just kind of like tourists uh, through an art form. And I'm just like, 
you are not necessarily entitled to an opinion and you're not necessarily entitled to like stomp through it and then ruin it for the rest of us. And it's, you can't ever take it back. She can never take back what she said about (laughs) Adriana to me. And so I watched season five with this stupid woman's and can I tell you, I, can I tell you what she said to me? Yes. She said, so she was talking to me about it and I was like, I've managed to exist in a vacuum. I don't know what happens at the end of the show. I'm really like, it's amazing that I've made it this far without knowing about the season finale because I, I know people talked about it. That's all I know. Right. And she goes, what season are you on? I said, five. And she's like, oh. And I was like, don't, please don't go on. I don't know anything. And she went, oh, well, did anything really major happen to Adriana yet? And nothing had happened to her yet. So I watched the rest of, am I allowed to say what happens or do you? Yes, this, this, in this, in the context of this discourse, you are allowed to do that because anyone listening, uh, you know, they know what they're getting into, right? Okay. Spoiler alert for season five of The Sopranos. Adriana is killed in the second last episode. That's Um, very climactic. The whole season builds up to it too. It's the end of the season. And she asked, I mean- I'm still, I'm never going to see this person again. I don't even know if she's still dating the guy who was actually had the invite to this wedding. I sat next to her at the table also, and it was just, it was not a pleasant conversation. Okay. When, can you, I just, for our listeners want to describe something that you've established with your wedding policy, which is, uh, what is it? Confidence, not superiority. Oh yeah. Yes, I've never. Can actually... you explain this? <laughs> well, um, oh, this actually circles back to the topic I jumped away from a few minutes ago, which was <laughs> Americanized slash Canadianized modern Jews. <laughs> <laughs> so in 2019, I was cast as a bridesmaid <laughs> in a childhood friend's wedding in Vancouver. And I left Vancouver when I was 17 and I have not really gone back. I go back maybe once a year and I don't really have any friends there anymore. And I feel very like disconnected from the place. Um, And the wedding was like almost entirely, my friend was marrying her, someone who she had met when we were all five years old. So the wedding was just kids from Vancouver Tomatora and like that is, it's my nightmare. And I couldn't really, I actually didn't understand why I was so afraid and intimidated of the idea of being at a wedding with children from my elementary school. And then when I went back to Vancouver for this wedding where I was a bridesmaid, um, I found my diary from the year I got bat mitzvahed we had to take a class at a synagogue to prepare for our mm. bar and bat mitzvahs. I don't know if you had to do this. Jordana mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Temple was the teacher and <laughs> didn't like me <laughs> once had to compliment me on the spot and said, well, you're really polite, <laughs> which I'll remember forever. <laughs> anyway, Fuck. I think I'm more interesting than just polite, but also I'm shy. So your relationship with authority is so like, they're all threatened by you. Every story I've heard about you with a teacher figure, they're always threatened by you. And they always try to cut you down. I, I, I've only felt small because of this Jordana comment about me being polite, but 
I do feel like a weight is lifted in this moment. <laughs> yes. Okay. Sorry. Continue. So she made us all, she had us keep this thing called a grateful diary where we are supposed to write one sentence every single day for something we were grateful for mm-hmm. leading up to the day of our bar bat mitzvah. She said she would never check it, but we were expected to do it. And because I'm afraid of getting in trouble, I like did it every single day of course. for fear that one day she would say, all right, I need to review your grateful journals. And so I was reading through this diary when I was home before the wedding and I found, I discovered, I'd recorded things that had happened in elementary school that were the answer for why I was so afraid of being part of this wedding, which was I had dated a guy in grade five, so young and named Oliver Peril Winkler. And he was so, and he was not very nice to me. He, (laughs) there's too many stories, but the, the end of the relationship in grade five, I was sitting at his kitchen table. His mom, Karen Walker was watching us do math homework and she said she told me to put my pencil down because I was going too fast and she made me stop working so Oliver could catch up and that was that was the end of the relationship for me and Oliver but in the diary what had happened after that which I'd forgotten about was that the school was really small and he like rallied all of the boys in our elementary school to just like bully me until the end of Vancouver Talmatora so from like grade five to grade seven. I I don't really remember this, but like there were so many diary entries of just being like tormented by these boys after I'd broken up with Oliver Carol Winkler. (laughs) So many, and he was at the, he was at the wedding. So all of these boys were at the wedding. And so to this policy I have of confidence over superiority, it was the first time I was seeing like this group of kids that I am like viscerally afraid of and scarred by. I hadn't really processed that. The level I had processed to was that I was, I had the tools to show them all that like, I'm the best. Like I live in New York now. I work at a magazine. (laughs) I, Mm -hmm. I look good in a black dress, like all that, that level of, of processing. And so I worked myself up to convey all of those accomplishments at the wedding, but acting superior in front of people is really weak and it made, and I, it didn't work. Like they were all really nice. Ariel Gelman tried to ask me how I was doing. (laughs) And instead of just talking to him, like a normal person who like listens and receives and shares, I was just like, I'm good. (laughs) And I wouldn't say anything else. And I really, it was a really good learning experience, which is that confidence is very different from trying to feel superior. Okay. I want to jump ahead to a kind of like archetypal thing that happens a lot with you. I associate you with a lot of Lilith attributes. Uh, I don't know how much of that is welcome or agreed upon by you, but I do think it's like very present and it's definitely present. We'll get to the Gowanus Canal later, but you know, this story to me is so Lilith, which is like, you were told you had to do everything right or else you'd be punished by these authority figures. So you're trying to be like the best math student you can be. You're then proven to be more, 
possibly adept and fast moving than this male. And then you basically get exiled and terrorized for it and like turned into this like demoness pariah. And how do you feel about that? <laughs> I think that's really accurate. And I think it also like goes back to what we were talking about, like high school, like childhood is so weird, like traumatizing for any little like plastic brain. All of that stuff is like, very like long-term scarring but you just <laughs> like as an adult now like I can't pay attention to it I'm it comes up in my behaviors I'm sure like I've I think about it and try to work through it on different levels but it's just like the the raw story of it is really like sad and like mu much more impactful on a brain that isn't developed than it would be for a 30 year old. Yeah, I just feel like it's very generational, but it's also just like, I mean, it is in like the original, you know, it's in the story of the Garden of Eden, which is like, why are you telling me I'm doing what I'm naturally inclined to do and what you want me to do? And now I'm being punished for it. And like, yeah, I just think it's so present. Um, and then it, anyways, so in recent weddings, you said that you've uh, led with confidence and not superiority, correct? I did that at the wedding that I was talking about before, where this plus one ruined season five of The Sopranos for right. me, which was so like joyful. And I was so relaxed because I didn't have to do anything like I didn't have to communicate or convey anything about my personality or my accomplishments yeah. to anyone. And it felt amazing. And I was, and there, I mean, it just feels really good to like communicate to people without an agenda. Yeah. Do you feel like you're more vulnerable in those moments? Because I feel like as I'm like letting some of my guard down and being more open, I'm also opening myself up to immediate demonic attacks uh, at all levels. And I just feel like it makes it easier for those six feet, for those um, Sopranos violators to like find me and then crush me. And I'm just kind of negotiating with that. Yeah. I don't think I don't have the solution. Like I know that I feel the same way. I've, I know that I'm happiest when I'm confident and I'm, and when I'm confident, I'm just myself. Like there is no guard, um, but much easier and faster to like, I can get hurt a lot quicker in those moments. I don't know what the, like, I, I don't really know how you can navigate that. I don't think the answer is like developing thicker skin. Cause that's just like another way. I don't know. When did you become because I know you as someone who's very like doesn't do what she doesn't want to do for anyone um, and is very much like like when did you become the queen because I know you as the queen and like it's very profound there but like do you have a conscious awareness of when that transition happened or was that always there it wasn't always there and I think it happened the summer that I <laughs> The summer that I ran into 
every single one of my ex-boyfriends in reverse chronological order, which you you know all about. The summer this of was, 25. Thank you. The summer of 2015. Thank you. Thank you. Yes. Uh, 2016. 2016. Climactic. Yeah. Okay. What was happening in 2016? Uh, it was the beginning of the end. Uh, you know, the, the all women Ghostbusters film came out and that signaled the kind of end of a lot of things we thought were going to happen and it kind of led to the trump presidency basically i recently watched ghostbusters 2 for the first time as part of you know my film curriculum how do, do you have literally anything <laughs> to say about that movie um not I, the only thing i have to say is the like guy who gets possessed the art guy okay you know, i should look up his name no i'll um, look it up oh thank you Ghostbusters 2. I haven't seen it in 50 years. I didn't need to bring it up, actually. But Who gets possessed? He's like, he's he has a crush on Sigourney Weaver. He's oh, like, it's what's-his-name who plays fucking Renfield in uh in Bram Stoker's Dracula. He's also yes. like on Ally McBeal. Yeah. He gives the performance of a lifetime. Okay, thank you. <laughs> my review of Ghostbusters 2. He really does. I mean that sincerely. Um, I, I would put his performance in Ghostbusters 2 in like a camp near Joaquin Phoenix's performance in We Own the Night, which I just yeah. can't stop talking about. <laughs> yeah, I just want to like put that out there for anyone listening to this podcast. Lulu has seen the Mark Wahlberg, Joaquin Phoenix uh, brothers as cop gangster rivalry film we on the night but she does say that joaquin phoenix's performance is the performance of a lifetime and i will say that movie is as bad as ghostbusters 2 actually so they have a lot in common <laughs> um <laughs> so in 2016 you met all of your exes in reverse chronological order exactly i ran into them all in reverse chronological order over the course of like two or three months which is weird in new york because so few Vancouverites make it to New York. Mm. Um, and two of these people were Vancouverites who like happened to be in New York City in the time frame where <laughs> it was their job, it was their moment in the reverse chronology of all of my exes. And I ran into them in the city. Mm. And so that was really, that summer was really healing for me. And the most magical summer of my life because of I mean it was just planned by someone else mm -hmm. or maybe by me in the future um and I changed and, and that summer also that's when I started my job at Condé Nast before you know at the time like it felt like that was like a real queen experience like mm. going to World Trade Center I'd made it. <laughs> I was working at a magazine, like all the all the like glamour that like a a young person thought Condé Nast was in 2016. I felt, and so I think I I turned queen there then. You know, there's two kinds of run-ins with the exes, which is either the run-in of like what could have been. Or the run-in of like, oh, I have definitively evolved past you and you're a fucking loser now. Um, and I'm just curious about like what your experience was like that summer. 
They all, almost all of them apologized, which was really, that was more surreal than running into them. Like one of them, it started, I didn't start at one point I ran into Jacob Wolshansky, who I didn't date, but I, this was my first crush in college very Oliver Perel Winkler vibes where like I was I was just like hopelessly crushing on him I mm-hmm. I liked him so much he definitely was not interested in me but would sort of say he was like just like college freshman girl kind of dynamic where yeah. I was just available and like hoping that he would like you know he, he said he, he would just it would just obviously wasn't gonna happen and I was so hopeful for it and um, my final night of freshman year, we were hanging out. I was just always like hanging out with him and his friends. Mm. And he turned, we were talking and like, as a joke, he turned around and just like joke slapped me on the face and something changed. And I was like, oh, I never want to talk to you or see this person ever again. And the summer where I was running into my exes in reverse chronological order, the summer started where I had was at a friend's. Oh, this is there are important facts about this summer actually that may derail okay. the Jacob conversation, but they're good. There there are rules. You know, I like to have all these rules at different times in my life. Same. I was following these rules that summer that maybe turned me into a queen. One was that I had to go every everywhere by myself. Fuck. Um because I noticed that I was like bringing friends with me to events I had been invited to. And I was like, I should just learn how to go to a social event by myself. Talk about a life-saving lesson, cut the dead weight. It's really, yeah. And it, it was always that, like, I always met someone. It was just so powerful. Yes. Um, And then also at the time I would never follow this rule now, but at the time go to everything (laughs) I was invited to which sounds like insane to me now. <laughs> like <laughs> that is my worst nightmare. That yeah. is it. That's it. Okay. But can you imagine if, if you were excited by that rule? Oh my be... God. What talk about a lust for life. <laughs> that, Jesus. I feel like that's probably the lady who made my anklet. Who's between the ages of 19 and 22. She probably follows these rules. Oh yeah, and power to her. She's and gonna she be huge. Yeah. yeah, and then she'll be tired when she's thirty, and that's fine. Here we are. Time is a flat circle. We'll be excited in a few years. Um. So oh. you were. Oh, so I was. I was following these rules where I was going everywhere by myself and right going to everything I was invited to. So I ended up at like a party that I only knew one person and I was totally alone. And I ended up meeting Jacob Olshansky's brother, which Whoa. was crazy. Like I, he had the same last name and I was like, are you, are you related to Jacob Olshansky? <laughs> and so later that summer, Jacob showed up at the same like party on this person's house, like a few weeks later. And he apologized to me. Like that was the thing he decided to talk about with me. And wow. I remember he apologized for that and apologized for, just a bunch of like bad stuff. And then I said to him, I still think you're a fucking asshole. <laughs> and that was like, it felt, I've never done anything like that Fuck. to someone when they've like apologized. 
I but love it that. felt really good. And I, that, I, yeah, that whole summer, like getting these apologies from people who I had sort of like ingratiated myself to, and then coming out more powerful. And it happened over, it happened a lot with, with many different men. And that changed me. Yeah, I, I have to say, like, I do take sick pleasure in, in those moments of like victory. And, you know, classically, when I was 18, I've, I don't know why the story has been coming up a lot lately. But like, you know, when I was 18 in Greece, uh, on spring break, I was at a gay bar in Athens. And on the TV, they were replaying the Britney Spears, Christina Aguilera, VMA's kiss, and they were playing Here Comes the Rain Again by um, the Eurythmics, the Freemasons remix, you know, to anyone who's listening. And this like, the door opens this gorgeous, like Hans Christian Andersen, half French, half Greek, just Prince walks in. We lock eyes, he comes straight up to me and like it was on. And he took me home on his moped. And then when we got to his place, by the way, he like ran out of condoms, which I was like, even me 18 and dazed was like, huh. Um, and he was like 25. And of course, like at that point, and I mean, I still do this. I of course immediately put him on a pedestal and I was like, he's so much better than me. He's like, a full adult apparently he told me he was a fulbright scholar okay um and now i hate to say this i'm the hotter one and like that is so cruel i'm sure he's doing great things in the world but like i am hotter than he is now and for some reason like it's not even a victory on him it's like a victory on myself where i'm like oh, I'm not who I was anymore and I'm going to have to take this. Like, it's so petty, but do you know what I mean? I totally. I, it's like, well, yeah, it's, it's summer of youth, according to the New York Times. Okay. <laughs> but like, <laughs> have you read it? That, that, that is one of those pieces where I'm like, thank God I have you to report it to me because if I had to read an article about the New York Times about the summer of youth, okay it's still i'm really angry about it but there's something so it's so like on the most basic level hotness is so powerful and yes youth is so powerful tragically but yes we can talk about that later but you're like, so right i mean youth is the most powerful thing it's so it's so like it's it's violently powerful and what's ironic about youth, this is not an original statement, but like when I, my 20s, I rarely felt young. Yeah. I was so buried and depressed. I mean, I really was out a lot and I danced a lot and that sort of thing. And like, I think looking back, I can be like, oh, there were moments of youthfulness, but I didn't feel like in possession of vitality. So it just feels really ironic that like, from an external perspective, like I had that because I am like way more interested in some sort of like a puer eternus, like uh, a youth that I can attain now, like some sort of like um, a, 
I don't know, like what Alan Cumming has, which is like. I was about to say child. His show is called Child at Heart, Young at Heart. Oh, wow. Okay, that's it. I was about to cite. I mean, that's such a good example. (laughs) Because, yeah, my I was I don't think my my childhood or my teens, I felt very young and free. I never felt free. Yeah, I I. I'm so I think one one thing that I would like to learn how to do also is how to like really truly feel youthful mm. <laughs> forever. Yes. But also um learn how to this is another unoriginal thought, but really learn how to accept my youth for what it is in the moment instead of retrospectively. I don't know if that's Wait. possible. I mean, not that we've, we're even bothering making this a six feet under episode like we had planned, but <laughs> you know, I like had a breaking point a few weeks ago on the subway where I started crying um, because I've just been realizing like I've been going, I've been working out addictively for years and like monitoring my eating for years because I've either thought that I could like use it as a preventative for sexual abuse or that I would be like thin enough that people would love me one or the other. And that's come to a breaking point and I'm realizing that that's all bullshit. And like, I was on the subway on the M train. Do you hear how I I sound like quote that hack Patty Smith, but I was on the M train and I was just thinking about like, what a waste this has all been and like all of these years that I could have just been like carefree and instead I was like punishing myself and I pulled up on my phone that scene from the end of season four where David Fisher after surviving everything he survived um their father Nathaniel Fisher like visits him and he's like um you know you're missing the point. And David's like, there is no point. That's the point. And his dad's like, no, the point is you're alive, you know? And David says, it can't be that easy. And Nathaniel is like, what if it is? And I like fully lost it. I was just like weeping, weeping, weeping. Of course, then on the train came in these like performers and I was like, not now. (laughs) Like, can I have, can we get from like, can we please just get from like um Marcy to Delancey without this? But no. Um, anyways. Which um I have so many things to say. So I'm gonna start with the stupidest thing, which is a few months ago during COVID, Vogue published this video that was scripted by Jeremy O'Harris and voiced over by Whoopi Goldberg. And it was supposed to, oh, cast by New York Nico, <laughs> like mm. just, and it was all about, it was like this love letter to New York. That's what it was called, I think. And the like sort of storyline of this video was like, I think the last line is something like, I love New York and New York loves me. <laughs> like it was it's like the ode to like this really like giving city that will always love me no matter what. And like, Bella Hadid was in it like you know Mm -hmm. just like the most like glossy like cuddly version of New York and I when you were talking about the subway just in that moment the one like just one time when you don't want performers to come on while you're weeping on the subway New York doesn't really love anyone like New York 
could not give a shit about anyone who lives here. Yes. New York doesn't need us. Like New York isn't any source for support or encouragement. Like, sure, like live here, try to figure it out. I'm not going to make it. I'm not going to accommodate you. And uh, it just that just reminded me of this video that we've never talked about that. I think eventually we should we should have a conversation. About. Yeah, I agree. Or this Thank is you. it. Thank you. No, I'm going to have to look into this because the New York Times also had an up. They had an they had an editorial I remember reading a few years ago by someone big. It was like I don't want to say it was Frank Rich, but like at that level, and it was like it was like my ode to the subway. And he was like, I don't even take a book or or headphones. I just like notice the life happening all around me. And I was like, shut up. I was, first of all, I was like, the New York Times, you know, it's it's not been it's not been great for a long time, first of all. But secondly, it was like, um, shut the fuck up. Like, this is clearly written by like someone who lives in LA. Um, which by the way, I just want to like let everyone know gonna get in so much trouble for this (laughs) the gossip girl reboot is being made by writers in los angeles like okay we just you know the biggest offense in my life that i just want to say right now is this on my birth lulu thank you for letting me go off about nothing on my birthday in 2014 when i was still living in la i went to the arclight cinema to see the amazing spider-man 2 starring andrew garfield emma stone and jamie fox there is a fight scene between Spider-Man and Electro that takes place in Times Square, which is to say Sony couldn't cough up the money for the writers of these movies to even take like a weekend trip and sightsee. Instead, they were like, OK, well, what's a location in New York? Times Square. Let's have them fight there. It was like, you know, uh, this I'm just like. Okay, sorry. That's all I have to say. No, it's all part of the same. It's all in the same family. Like, I guess it's just Hollywood, New York. It's Hollywood. New. Oh, wait, there's something about New York. I want to say I want to bring up with you. My roommate is rewatching Sex in the City, and he's currently in the like season five, six arena. I want your thoughts on this. Do you know that point in Sex in the City? It's specifically post 2000 when they start going to these like restaurants and clubs that are like Hakkasan, Dao, uh, Budokan, thank yeah. you. And like, obviously there's the raw restaurant where Smith Jared works. And it's yeah. like these dark fusion restaurants that have like really loud, like bossa nova music. What is that? <laughs> Like, when did Manhattan become, like, why did the show do that? Like, why did that happen? Why are we still living in that? Like, why is that Millennium New York? I think that was, I think that, I mean, that's sort of like the the start of girls also, right? Like, because I also associate Mm. like uh, Greenhouse, which is the club where Lena Dunham takes off she has the mesh shirt with her yes. boobs showing yes. and that and greenhouse was right near Westway, which was West gay on Tuesdays. Huge. And they're like, if I, so that is part of the same world as like <laughs> to their two towel locations, right. Or maybe so. one closed. It's sort of like, it reminds me of like um, 
rainforest cafe, mm-hmm. but like put through the lens of Hollywood, New York. Yes, exactly. You know, I think girls, it's almost like Sex in the City launched that and then girls exist in the ruins of it, which is like, yeah, this is nothing. Yeah, that is what Greenhouse, it's called Greenhouse, right? That cl- It closed like I think my first so. year here. That whole part of New York. And I guess they eventually like spend a lot more time away from Varick Street on girls and oh more time in, in Brooklyn. <laughs> I, I want to tell you that I restarted Girls this week, but uh, seeing Christopher Abbott in the very first episode, like, made me full body, like, want to heave. It's so uncomfortable, and it's so real, but I'm just like, okay, if I'm going to do this, I have to do this, you know? Yeah. I I don't know what it will be like for me to rewatch it. Um but watching it for, I watched it for the, for for anyone who's listening, I watched it for the first time last year and another show that I managed to like live totally away from. I didn't absorb any of its discourse while it was actually on the air. I didn't know anything Mm. about it, but I, I don't know what it would be like to rewatch it when you know the characters and you know what you can feel. And just like, yeah, cause I lived it so vividly. I'm just like, what would this be like to rewatch it now? So that's, that's a conversation um, that I have to have. Have you watched more than the first episode? Are you deciding if you want to watch On this rewatch? No, I'm just deciding what I need. Can I just say something? Do you ever feel like your life is more interesting than anything you're watching? I sometimes do. Sometimes I do too. And I'm like, okay, can we speed this shit up? That's I I mean that's a great place to be. I don't know if I feel that right now. But I do I'm loving being I hope it's okay that I mention her on the podcast. I love just having Sarah H as my as my mentor right now. Uh Lulu, Henry, Kapersky, and I share three assistants who are all named Sarah. None of them are real. Sarah H, Sarah M and Sarah B. Sarah M really keeps the operation running. Sarah H is a mess. Sarah B is an intern. You currently have Sarah H with you, which I really appreciate because I need Sarah M right now. And I just like, I need that support. I need that solidity. And I'm so grateful that you're like able to just have a fun summer with Sarah H and hear about all of her boyfriend drama, right? It's it's so sloppy. Like she thinks that she's being really helpful, which no. I like. She doesn't need to know. And I'm fine paying her for it. <laughs> but like, she doesn't keep a schedule for me. She doesn't hold me accountable for any of my responsibilities. Yeah. It's total sloppiness, but not a lot going on in my life as a result. Sort of just like wandering aimlessly through the streets of New York. Um, I've, I have a lot of, I, my friends have shared their locations with me on their phones recently. So, you know, like I've been practicing the art of the drive-by where I'll say hi to someone and then leave immediately. Mm, That's as, yeah. I've instituted an Irish goodbye policy, actually. Mm. I have decided enough 
and I don't know anyone anything and I can leave the minute I desire. Yes. Have we talked about peak fun? No. Oh, this is my this is my longest standing rule that I've been practicing okay. for years. Peak fun. You leave an event as soon as you wonder whether or not it's time to leave. Oof. And you don't say goodbye to anyone. It translates in like usually peak fun means that you leave right when you're starting, right when you feel like you could have a lot more fun. It's the opposite of FOMO. Wow. And I, such a great rule. I never regret staying. Like it's, it's not good for the person who made my inklet because she's young and has energy and goes to every party she's invited to. Exactly. (laughs) Exactly. But it's great. Like I don't fear that I'll miss anything. Yeah. I mean, I was at a, God, I was at a party on Thursday, last Thursday. You know, I'm starting to doubt the intelligence level of some members of the the radical fairy community. I'm sorry to like offend my people. You know, I don't know how lucid they are. Okay. But I got into a conversation with a demon I know, and I was just like, is this the most valuable use of my time? And then I was going to go to another party where a crush of mine happened to be and guess what no one buzzed me up so what did i lose from what did i gain from staying nothing what did i lose quite a bit yeah that does sound really painful how what are you feeling i mean you and i have been talking about like the horniness levels in new york what are you feeling in terms of like what you're seeing on the streets it's incredible i could go on and on about it we drive around in my <laughs> all <of laughs> we drive around my partner and i just drive around just looking at everyone i have it's- to tell you lulu i got a lime subscription you did and i have been on a moped cruising the streets and yesterday i was like I don't know what I'm supposed to do because I want to look at these men, but I have to like keep my eyes on the road. It's crazy. Uh, I I couldn't agree more. Everyone is so attractive and so hot and so horny. Everyone's making eye contact in this really sort of like invasive, (laughs) penetrative way. It's I'm. It is 2008. It is 2008. It is 2008. I am. Wow, I'm actively writing about that uh, for a piece about Pluto right now. Um, It is 2008. Katy Perry has just come out with the single, I Kissed a Boy and I Liked It. (laughs) Estelle has just released American Boy. Oh my God. And Michael Phelps is is, uh, at the Beijing Olympics. That, yeah, that's right. That was our first... Fall 2008 was our first year of college, right? Yes. yes. Okay. Which was, I mean, it wasn't NYU for either of us, but I'm sure it was something. <laughs> what um, was what was first semester of freshman year for college of college? Well, classically, I did a year abroad in the homeland, which was like the best year ever. And it was like, Oh, I'm finally home. I'm fine. Like it, I just like was reborn. That was when I became some version of this, which is like, oh, you're telling me that there's like a gay nightlife here. I'm 18. They're playing Spice Girls every night. And like, I can just 
do whatever I want. And that was kind of like the genesis for me. That was like the first awakening um, of many. Then when I went to college the next year, it all came crushing down. Uh, and In you know, 2009? Just, yes. It, then it was just years of kind of disappointment and disillusionment and depression. Yeah. What was your first semester like? Um, it was really eye-opening. It was, I met people who I connected with better than I'd connected with anyone in Vancouver, which was really weird to me mm. because it didn't seem, it, I was confused by it. I was like, wait, yeah, I'm, it is confusing. I didn't know. Like, I remember thinking like, I didn't know people could be this funny. <laughs> like, is this allowed? And it was really amazing. And it was full of drama because my college was so small. It was just a high school where everyone was hooking up with everyone. That was like the thing that you were, you were just like, always going to be making out with someone that your friend also had a crush on like that kind of drama mm, it was delicious. very it was high school high school summer drama for four years i mean other and stuff you, also but you have taught me that it is okay to embrace high school summer drama um in 2019 i think was my peak high school summer drama and now who's to say what this year will be what this summer will be i don't know what it like a 2008 summer seems transcendent beyond high school summer i want to go to a water park that is we I, we've been talking about maybe planning my birthday at a water park okay so okay. <laughs> i've never been to a water park i've never been on a roller coaster so we were thinking about like having yeah a, like roller coasters terrify me but water parks are just like it's just uh, there's nothing better it's totally wasteful it's absolutely an aberration on the environment there's no way we're ever going to have water parks in the next 10 years but they're like fabulous you they usually have like a lazy river where you just get on a tube and sit there i yeah. mean it's gorgeous we, we found one where you can like rent like a box for your group so we're thinking about that okay i mean <laughs> You know, I will buy the Dippin' Dots, by the way. Um, um, from the vending machine. Uh, they may have, you know, an actual uh, server at this, at this, based on my experience, you may go to an actual Dippin' Dot station. I mean, wow. this is pretty deluxe. Yeah, thank you. Um, obviously, look, this is going to be the first of many episodes you do because, like, I think we're just, this is not even a linear conversation. This is more of kind of a... Uh, a holographic mosaic, if you will. So I just want to say like, uh, you know, hello, goodbye, thank you and welcome. Where can people follow you and follow your work? Exclusively on Instagram.com. Mm -hmm. My name, Lulu Kraus, and that's it. I don't know about Twitter. And um, that's the only place I exist, Instagram. Okay. Um, Great. I will give more details about you in the intro. Um, thank you for, thank you for this. This, this is, was so fun. I never thought I could do this. Oh yeah. I thought we were going to talk about six feet under and I'm, this is what I wanted to happen. And this is what Henry said would happen. He was like, you and Lulu are just going to talk about nothing and everything. And I was like, you know what? Here we are. It was fabulous. 
The Luminaries is made with love in New York City. Art by Greg Kozatek and music by Henry Kapersky. Thank you so much for listening. I would so, so, so appreciate if you could leave a review, a five-star rating, etc., etc., on iTunes. I don't know if you can rate things on Spotify, but you get the idea. Tell your friends. You know where to find me. I will see you next Tuesday with all my love, David Odyssey.